Hi, I'm Crystal Sorakis, and this is Off the Page, a brand new podcast from WSKG Public Media. I'll be talking with writers from our local community and also from around the globe about their works, what their writing process is like, and more. I hope you enjoy it. Today's guest is New York Times best-selling author Carrie Vaughn. She's the author of the Kitty Norville urban fantasy series. She's also a contributor to the Wild Card series edited by George R.R. Martin and has written over a hundred short stories, two of which have been finalists for the Hugo Award. Her most recent release is Questland. In the book, literature professor Dr. Eddie Cox is living a happy, if sheltered, life in her ivory tower when Harris Lang, the famously eccentric billionaire tech genius, offers her an unusual job. He wants her to guide a mercenary strike team sent to infiltrate his island retreat off the northwest coast of the United States. Now, Eddie is puzzled by her role on the mission until she understands exactly what Lang has built. Insula Mirabilis, an isolated resort where tourists will one day pay big bucks for a convincing, high-tech, powered fantasy world experience, complete with dragons, unicorns, and, yes, magic. But some of the island's employees have gone rogue and have activated an invisible shield to cut off all outside communication. It's now up to this band of mercenaries, and Annie Cox, to get onto the island and take back control. Think Jurassic Park meets Dungeons and Dragons, and you'll have a good idea of just how awesome this story is. It's a love letter to nerds and geeks everywhere, but it's also a cautionary tale of how too much fantasy might be a dangerous thing. Carrie, thanks so much for joining me. No, thank you for inviting me. So we're going to talk first about Questland. Now, this is a story about technology that makes fantasy come to life. And there's that definite homage to Arthur C. Clarke, you know, that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, which kind of seems to be the world we're living in sometimes today. After reading this book, I think it might be fair to say that you're just a little bit of a nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little bit. Yeah. Um, um, Yeah. Speaking of Arthur C. Clarke, I, I kind of realized I was a nerd back in sixth grade silent reading period when most of the other girls were reading Sweet Valley High. And I had Arthur Clarke's 2010, uh, you know, 400 pages long with a glowing blue fetus on the cover. (laughs) And it's like, I may not be like everyone else. (laughs) I I think I was the same way. Yeah. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about Questland and also take us back to that initial idea, that seed that turned into this book? Yeah, I I think a lot of it started with... uh, that you know, aphorism from Clark about sufficiently advanced technology and realizing that increasingly uh, we're living in that world, uh, that, that looking around there are so many things that, uh, you know, when we were growing up uh, were, you know, quote unquote science fiction, um, you know, the way that technology just seems so magical now and, and that there are so, many, so much of that that we can do, you know, looking at Questland and, and realizing that it's just barely science fiction, you know, there's just two or three things uh, that they do that, that we're not actually capable of doing right now. Uh, and I won't put money that there's some laboratory somewhere that, that isn't actually doing <laughs> some of those things. So yeah, I, that, that's where it started is that, okay, uh, you know, you take your average, you know, Dungeons and Dragons quest, how much of that can we actually accomplish 
uh, with technology right now. Um, and it turns out quite a lot. Uh, so I wanted to do that, but it the story grew, like that was the seed and I had that seed a long time ago. Uh, and it turns out that that the story wasn't quite fully cooked then. And, and that in hindsight, I needed the world to catch up with the idea a bit. And, and the things that I added to the story later on are um, things like the, uh, the, the billionaire tech guy um, is such a vivid personality in our culture right now um, that, that it wasn't quite in the way, um, you know, 20 years ago. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be up front. Like my, my very first working title for the, the book was uh, Tolkien Park like Jurassic Park, but with right, Tolkien. Right. So, you know, you go to an island where all these things, and then things run amok. Um, and, you know, my initial idea was that kind of grandfatherly, you know, billionaire figure from Jurassic Park, but it turns out that's not what we have now. We have we have these these tech guys um, that are li quite literally taking over the world. You know, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna soften that language at all. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. they are, they're not just taking over this world. You know, they, they have their eyes on Mars and the moon and space and all this other other stuff. Um, you know, they, they are practically Bond villains. So so that that was an addition to the book that I think made the book a lot better just because it's so real. It's something that's out there now. Um, and also the popularity of immersive theme parks. Um, you know, I remember pitching this idea to an editor, uh, you know, quite a number of years ago now, and he just didn't believe that, um, you know, the expense of a park like that would really be commercially viable. And I look now at, you know, like Galaxy's Edge and, and the Wizarding World and that kind of thing, and people are starved for these immersive experiences. Um, so I added that into the mix. And also a few other, uh, you know, cultural issues, like um, like the book is also kind of a meditation on violence uh, and, and gaming violence versus real world violence and what happens when you have experience uh, with real world violence and you bring that to the game. So there, there's a lot, <laughs> you know, it started with the one seed, but I was able to pile kind of a lot of, of really relevant uh, real world issues into that, that I think makes the book feel less science fictional than it did when I first had the idea. Yeah, I, I was actually having a conversation uh, with a friend too, not too long ago that I don't think Hollywood could make Jurassic Park today the way that it was made when it came out, just because our concept of that has shifted so much. And and the the Jurassic Park movies that they are making now look quite a bit different. Um, right. You know, so much more commercially driven. I think you know the the world of Jurassic Park is much more commercially driven than it was. Yeah, I, the original Jurassic Park movie just seems so idealistic now in some ways. Um, you know, we're doing this for science, and it's like, no, you're not doing this for science. You know, right. be real. <laughs> which which is amazing, given just how badly things go wrong in Jurassic Park, that this is like the innocent version of these theme right. parks today. So I want to talk a little bit about Addie Cox. Addie Cox is our heroine. Mm -hmm. She's the literature professor turned reluctant adventurer who kind of guides us through Questland. And one of the things that really, you know, I loved about this is just that her voice is so real. Like those of us who, who grew up back before fantasy and sci-fi was just so incredibly mainstream. I think she speaks a lot to to that part of us for those who grew up. So, you know, how did Addie Cox come to be, come, come to life for you? So I, I have some friends who've said that of all of my characters, Addie Cox is probably the most like me because I, I have the literature degrees. You know, I spent a little bit of time in academia. I wanted somebody who could kind of take the meta view of the whole thing, you know, the, the metafictional view that she she's the one who can draw back the curtains 
Um, you know, she's the one who who is trained to analyze. You know, you know, not analyze in kind of an engineering sense, but to to understand why why people like the stories that they do. You know, why why certain tropes recur. Uh, you know, so she is the one person who can see both sides of it. That it's maybe not the technology that is driving things on the island. Um, that it's it's the story and it's it's people's um, you know people's impulses and and what pe what they believe in. Um, and so I, I really wanted somebody with with that kind of unashamedly that background, kind of unabashedly uh, that humanities background. Um, you know, which which doesn't always get a lot of respect. Um, but but for me, it, it's you know, that perspective is so important because it's the one that is able to make sense of everything else. And so it was really important to have somebody who could speak to all of these different aspects in, in a really deep way. Like, like, it's not just that she's a geek who's, who's been gaming all of her life. You know, she's actually studied, um, you know, the source material, that, that all of this has a source material. Like even Dungeons and Dragons is, is really, uh, uh, you know, deeply steeped in, in all of these folklore and these, these mythic threads. Um, that haven't really changed much, you know, if, if, if the oldest literature we have is like 8,000 years old, you know, eight to 10,000 years old is the oldest recorded literature. And it hasn't changed all that much. And it's really fundamental, um, you know, ideals of heroism um, and, and camaraderie and, and, you know, fear of the unknown, like all of that stuff is, is this common human thread. And yeah, and she, she's kind of the chorus, you know, she, she's kind of the person who's able to step back and look at it all and say, hey, guys, this is what's really going on here. And I really wanted that. I didn't want it to just be uh, kind of a free for all adventure. I wanted her to be able to comment on it. That was kind of a long answer. I hope it made sense. No, 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 totally. Because I mean, there's a part in the book where she's kind of, you know, this goes back to that, that Dungeons and Dragons reference where she's kind of, you know, putting everybody into their class and she's the bard. That is very true because she is our storyteller. She's the one who is, um, I guess, recording this epic deed and, and kind of interpreting for us. And I, and I really love that. I also feel, though, that there's this line. There's this line that Addie says uh, toward the end of the book that I that just resonated with me, where she says, this might be real, but it wasn't true. That feels like it sums up not just the danger of a place like Insula Mirabilis, but that there can be that little bit of darkness in too much fantasy. There is that little bit of danger. And anybody who's associated with fandom in general knows that there is a little bit of an underbelly. So is that something you specifically wanted to play with in writing this book? Yes, I think so. And, and specifically uh, in, in terms of the violence um, and, and also in, in her position as a bard, I think that, that you know, there's the joke in D&D &D that the bard is useless. You know, if you look at it statistically, the bard is not a very powerful character. And yet they are often the ones recording the story. Um, so, you know, in a sense, they get to decide, um, you know, they, they can see the truth and, and that the truth sometimes is more important than reality because the truth is what drives people. Um, and, and I think she, she sees the seams, she sees the cracks, you know, she sees the way that the people on the island, you know, the, the employees um, on the island um, maybe don't see the whole picture. Um, and, and that, you know, everybody tends to write her off um, as, as being, you know, an, a non-combatant, um, you know, not somebody who, who really, you know, maybe on the surface doesn't understand what's going on. Um, but she's, you know, one of the, the handful of people on the island who has actually had experience with real world violence. And so that does give her authority to speak. You know, the way she has to prove that through the story, I think, is a big part of her arc, you know, that she 
she is able to speak to truth in, in the way that a lot of the other characters aren't. One of the other things that she does, though, when you say that she, you know, sees the employees and she's asking these questions, you know, she says, hey, I never thought about who does the dishes in Rivendell, you know, and and that is another thing that jumped out at me, because especially if you're a person who's done LARPing or if you've headed out to the Ren Fair in full garb for the weekend or your SCA, those things absolutely intrude. Yeah. And they take us out of that place. We don't want to be reminded of that reality. Oh, I'm I'm longtime SCA. Um, so I've I've seen the way that, you know, those those sorts of jobs end up falling to the same people over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, some of those people embrace it, you know, that that's definitely an identity there. But it does sort of you do start to notice in fantasy literature, you know, especially uh, you know, maybe more traditional fantasy literature that that values um kind of certain gendered heroics over other <laughs> certain kinds of activities um, that, that, yeah, you know, you, you don't see people washing dishes, you don't see people cooking, you know, who washes the clothes, um, you know, that the, uh, the fellowship was traveling for weeks and weeks and weeks and how grody must their clothes have looked um, <laughs> after all that time. And we never really see that addressed, <laughs> you know, it, it's magic, right? They're magic clothes. They never get dirty. They're it's okay. <laughs> You know, the book works on one level, but if you're really into different fandoms, you know, you're going to pick up all of these other little tidbits, these Easter eggs that are in there. Is that something that you set out to do intentionally? Did they just start showing up? Um, Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, it it was intentional. Um, You know, I I couldn't help it showing up. You know, (laughs) there there was no way it was not going to start showing up. So at that point, it's, it's, you know, making conscious decisions about what to include and what not to include and realizing my own blind spots. Like I'm not much of a computer gamer, uh, video gamer. Mm-hmm. So that is a big um, kind of blind spot in my my geekdom, um, my, my nerddom. So I sort of had to had to learn some of the tropes, you know, learn some of the memes. Um, yeah, I, I did some hunting for like, you know, World of Warcraft memes and that kind of thing, <laughs> you know, for, for extra Easter eggs to work in. Um, and, and so, yeah, I became pretty conscious. Um, but the ones that are natural, you can kind of tell the ones that just slipped in. Mm-hmm. All the Star Wars and Labyrinth links, those are from my heart. <laughs> you know, the, those are the ones that are, that are all me. Um, yeah, I kind of joked that this was the book where I just made too many Star Wars and Labyrinth references and nobody stopped me. I kept expecting somebody to stop me saying, no, you've done too many. You have to cut some of them out. And no one ever did. <laughs> I, I love it because, you know, I've got a bad feeling about this. And then there's there's yeah. spare no expense a little bit later on. Is there a master list somewhere? Like, is there a prize for the reader who finds them all? I, I want to, I actually want to do an annotated version uh, because there's a couple that are like three different levels of Easter eggs. Um, there's, you know, it, once again, not to give too much away, but there's um, uh, the day the earth stood still reference, but it's not necessarily referencing the day the earth stood still. It's referencing army. Of, it's referencing the day the earth stood still via army of darkness, um, which just shows you kind of how deep this is that, that I think so many fantasy stories and geek references um, are, are like a nesting doll. Like, you know, one thing references the next thing references the next thing. So yes, I would like to do a list. 
Um, I've also sort of been waiting for like people to ask questions like, is this a reference? Because there's some pretty obscure ones. And I can tell you what I think is the most obscure one, but we might just want to leave that as a surprise and see if people can can spot it for themselves. Um, what was your fandom growing up? I'm going to have to say Star Wars. Um, Star Wars was probably my number one. I mean, the original fandom in some ways, right? You know, next yeah. to Star Trek. And I, I, I bring it up now because I've kind of come back to Star Wars fandom a little bit over the last year. Um, just as a comfort read, uh, you know, a comfort viewing, um, you know, the, the fandom that I'm most comfortable with. So I've, I've, I've been watching a lot over this last year um, because we all need comfort after this last year, I think. So that's what I've come back to. So, yeah, I mean, in the, in the meantime, I've got lots of other fandoms. Um, I've, I've never restricted myself to just one. Uh, I, I mentioned Labyrinth, you know, anything in the Jim Henson, uh, you know, world, I'm a big fan of. There's a couple of really obscure TV shows from the 80s. Um, I love Babylon 5. I was a big X-Files fan um, for the first few seasons when it first came out. Um, gosh, what else? Lots of things. <laughs> I, I, I like to say Luke Skywalker was absolutely my first boyfriend. Oh, oh I was a Han Solo girl. Oh, okay. okay. It, except it wasn't so much that I wanted him as a boyfriend I wanted to be him in some ways I wanted to to be that rogue you know my neighborhood had more girls than boys so when we uh when we all got together to play Star Wars um there could only be one Princess Leia so I let all the other girls fight over who was going to be Princess Leia and I was always Han Solo um, which was great because my brother was always Luke Skywalker or, so we made we made a pretty good team <laughs> the two out. of us it, out. <laughs> it totally worked out there, there are sometimes I'm a little bit jealous. Um, you know, my nieces and nephews are also growing up little nerds. And I'm sometimes a little jealous at how much they have now compared to say, you know, growing yes. up in the 80s. My niece is nine. And it's amazing to me just how ubiquitous it is in her world. Like I make her Halloween costumes every year because I just I love making costumes and I, I'm able to do it. Uh, and I think she was three when she asked to be Wonder Woman. Um, and I'm trying to figure out, like, where did she learn about Wonder Woman? Where did she first hear about Wonder Woman? And and I don't know. It's just it's just part of everything. It's just so ubiquitous. Now I know where I learned from Wonder Woman, where I learned about Wonder Woman, and that was the Linda Carter TV show. Um, you know, so I was Wonder Woman as Halloween, I think, when I was five. Um, but here she is, like three years old, and and like I have no idea. It's just so everywhere. I mean, we look at look at look at what Marvel has become, which. Oh you know, gosh, yes. It, it's like you said. I mean, you can't. You, it, it's showing up in places. You know, on PBS and different things, and all these. You know, what what used to be considered the highbrow stuff have got references now to, you know, not just Marvel, but to but to all of these things. And I guess that's why to bring it back around to Questland, I'm trying to decide if if we could do this theme park today. And I'm talking with the unicorns that you can ride and, you know, the Sphinx that's going to challenge you. I, is that a good thing or not? That idea of immersing yourself so, so intently. Yeah. Um, I think, I don't think it's a bad thing. The thing that worries me about all of this, and I'm not the only one who's worried about this, is just how corporate driven it is. Mm. That part of what's making this possible is it's got, the backing of these giant conglomerations of, of corporations that are entirely driven by money. And, and Disney isn't paying a lot of its creators right now um, that, that, you know, it has, it has bought up, um, you know, all of these properties 
and and that has been built over decades by many different creators. Um, you know, so so there's a movement now to try to make sure Disney is paying. Um, you know the the comics writers, the Star Wars writers, the the novelize the novelizations. You know, all, all of all of this has been built up by creators, but it's being controlled by these massive corporate interests. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, it's like they have our number. They know what we want. They know what will get our money. Um, you know, they know we all want to go to Galaxy's Edge and help fly the Millennium Falcon because that's our childhood dream, right? That's what we, you know, we played on the swing set as kids pretending it was the Millennium Falcon. And now they've made it possible to go do that if you can pay, you know, if right. you have the money. And, and that's, um, that's the worry that, that it's, it's so very much um, driven by a profit motive right now. And, and what do we lose um, on that? And, and one of the things we lose is, is you know, kind of a general participation, um, accessibility. Yeah, or is it crowding out innovation? Yeah, I don't know. Those are really big questions that, that a lot of people are grappling with right now. What is your reward when you finish a project? Oh, the next project. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I sort of try to constantly reward myself with little rewards rather than, um, you know, pin all my hopes on one big reward. I, I do a nice bottle of wine, maybe. Back when I was taking vacations, which will uh, hopefully start again soon, you know, trying to wrap up a project before the vacation and then actually uh, enjoying the vacation, you know, without having to worry about the project is always a nice reward. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not really on the kind of, re, you know, project reward cycle because, um, yeah, I, I, I usually just move on to the next project because I have so many things I want to do. <laughs> I don't want to take a break. Um, also, what are you reading or watching right now that you really love and that you want to recommend? Oh, gosh, so many things. Um, I'm rewatching The Expanse. Um, I, I'm a big fan of The Expanse, both the books and the show. And full disclosure, I, I know the authors. I'm friends with the authors. And I've, I've done beta reading on the books, which I, I brag about all the time. I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. Uh, but I've started the book over or started the series over um, because the last season is going to be airing uh, this winter. And the last book, Leviathan Falls, um, is coming out in November. So I'm getting ready for that. And I've actually, I've read, I'm not, no, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I've, I've read Leviathan Falls and it's great. Um, I read Hilary Mantel's uh, Wolf Hall trilogy. So Wolf Hall bringing up the bodies um, and I'm forgetting the title of the third one, but they're, they're fantastic. They're about Thomas Cromwell and Tudor England. Uh -huh. um, historical fiction that isn't written like any other historical fiction I've really encountered. It's, it's, like present tense, um, really almost stream of consciousness, but so beautifully written. Um, and I, I think I learned, you know, I've been, I'm a fan, I'm a fan of the Tudors. I'm not a fan of the Tudors. I'm a fan of the Tudor period, <laughs> let's say. The Tudors were not generally nice people, so I don't <laughs> want to be fans of them. Um, but, you know, 16th century England is kind of one of my uh, historical um, hobbies. Um, and I think I learned more about that period reading the Wolf Hall trilogy than anything else I've ever read. So I highly recommend that. Right when the pandemic started, when lockdown started, I binged uh, the TV show Black Sails and absolutely loved it. I think it's one of the best written TV shows of the last 10 years and it's kind of flown under everybody's radar. Um, it's about pirates um, in the golden age of piracy around the Bahamas, but it's a mashup of the actual historical events and a prequel to Treasure Island. Oh. So 
Captain Flint is one of the main characters and we see the origin of Long John Silver, but it's against the backdrop of Anne Bonny and Calico Jack are main characters. And it's the actual historical Bahamas. Very well done, uh, I think. You know, mostly historically accurate. Um, addresses a lot of the socio-political issues that were going on there. So, so that was a great thing to kind of immerse myself in um, over the last year. I'm sure that we could go on and on about all of the things we love, but uh, we're just about out of time for today. Carrie, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you. Questland by Carrie Vaughn is available now. Some of you have emailed to ask me to give my own book recommendations. That's a little like asking me to tell you what my favorite books are, which is impossible. But here are a couple of things I'm reading right now and I'm really enjoying. The Murmur of Bees is a beautiful story from Mexican author Sofia Segovia. When Nana Reja finds an abandoned baby disfigured and covered in a blanket of bees, the people around are suspicious, and they think that maybe this is a baby kissed by the devil. But as the young boy grows up, he can see what no one else can, visions of what's to come, both beautiful things and also dangerous. This book is set against the backdrop of both the Mexican Revolution and the deadly flu pandemic of 1918. And if you love magical realism, then I really think you're going to love this one. And if you read it, I'd love to hear what you think. On the nonfiction side of things, I'm reading The Secret History of Home Economics. And this is a fascinating look at the women, especially the women of color who have been largely forgotten, who created modern home economics as we know it. This book takes a really unflinching look at the racism, the colonialism that was part of the early home economics movement. And I've been amazed by just how much this field changed American households, and sometimes not always for the better. The stories of the women and the science behind something that most of us probably just rolled our eyes at back in high school is really, really interesting. By the way, Margaret Murray Washington, the wife of Booker T. Washington, and she was one of the founding mothers of the home economics movement, was one of my favorite people to read about. And I actually am looking for biographies to read more because she's just such an amazing, amazing woman. So there are my recommendations for you. I'd love to hear about what you're reading. Send me an email off the page at wskg.org. Off the Page is produced by WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracus. Thanks for joining me, and I hope to see you next time when we go Off the Page. Mm-hmm.